Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot on our on our plate here. We could continue to talk about, boy, just an amazing story here. Hunter over at Daily Co's writes, and he says it so brilliantly that I'm not even going to try to give you my interpretation of it. He says, let's pretend for a moment. Let's just say President Jimmy Carter owned a private club discovered to be hosting stripper golf caddy services. Let us imagine President Bill Clinton, during his first years in office, had a side business that dabbled in the occasional stripper auction. Let your mind wander over the response, Barack, President Barack Obama, the subject of frothing outrage for the school he attended when he was six years old, was, as president, making a few extra bucks on the side, pairing wealthy golfers with the nude dancers of their choosing. The Republican Party, Hutter writes over at Daily Kos, to use the scientific term for these things, would have gone ape shall we say crap, Senator Lizzie Graham would literally die. He would literally keel over and die from the scandal of it all. Old Newt Gingrich would climb to the top of the Capitol Dome and cling there screeching until staff dislodged him with a broom handle. All the Republicans who have written extremely self-regarding books on morality and family values and what is wrong with these kids today would go on television crying so many very sincere tears that we would refill the Ogallala Aquifer with enough leftover to supply Marco Rubio with a few bottles to spare, and all saying, how will we explain this to the children? And Senator Mitch McConnell, who is to legislation what Jeffrey Epstein is to money management, would be very, very certain that this was not just an impeachable offense, but a threat to the very foundation of the republic. Amazing. It just doesn't get weirder than that. Zoe in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been listening to and thinking about this whole conversation about what is the Republican Party about. And honestly, I think they're just trying to find the dumbest figurehead that they can to stick at the top of the pyramid. You know, in this case, it's the orange boy right now, you know, and before it was uh, Cheney. Cheney got away with tons of stuff when when W was at the top. But it's all to feed this fill in the blank industrial complex. Yeah. Um, whether that's military, prison, debt, but it does go back to, you used to say that progressives believe that everyone is basically good and conservatives believe that everyone is basically evil. Yeah. And that leads me to what is this George Lucas movie that he made before even, before Star Wars and even before American Graffiti, and it was called THX 1138. Hmm. He made it as a student film, and hmm. Francis Ford Coppola saw it at a student exhibit and said, we've got to make it a full-length film. And the film's almost 50 years old now, but it's very intelligent. And the, um, Lucas used to say in interviews and things that the idea for this film came when he thought about what would happen if we took capitalism to its furthest point. Mm-hmm. And everything is taken away from people. Every sort of autonomy of, uh, you know, involving anything, uh, production, reproduction, worship, emotion, even in this alternate future, you could get arrested for criminal drug evasion. But it has to do with this taking everything away from everybody, every choice, mm-hmm. not because they don't want to have a government make the choices for them, but right. because they want to be the ones to make the choice for them so it's and like to drive the wages down low enough yeah go ahead it's like the triumph of libertarianism i mean is that what you're saying well yes sort of yes although you know as your former co-worker mark Marin used to say he thinks uh, that the right wing is going to try to drive the wages low enough 
and the war without end enough so that people will be so poor and there will be so many, the military industrial complex will be so huge that eventually all they'll have to do to recruit for the military is come on the television screen and say, hey, are you hungry? Do you need a place to sleep? Well, that's essentially um, what they're doing right would, now. You've got yeah, a, I mean, a measurable fraction of the U.S. Armed Forces are people who are there mm -hmm. to flee poverty. Yeah, exactly. And this is, uh, uh, you know, Jefferson said, I hope I shall never live to see the day when young American men are willing to be paid to be shot at for a sixpence. That was his mm -hmm. phrase. And right. here we are. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the military has become the job of last resort. And it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. it, sh it should be. It should be a calling. It should, you know. Right. Absolutely. You should want to serve your country. You should yeah. not be forced to serve your country by some other terrible, awful circumstance. Yeah. Unless you know, they're giving lip service to the evangelists, evangelicals and freeing them to do whatever they want as far as our reproductive justice is concerned. And that's going to give them the population boost they need. To... Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's this, that's, uh, yeah. So conspiracy okay. theory. I'm sorry. I got it. No, I got it. Thank you, Zoe. I appreciate the call. And thanks for watching us there in Louisville. John in Langley, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Talking about money and how we're going to pay for things, like in Sweden. Right. Well, what struck me is that our currency is a fiat currency, which means it's on the full faith and credit of the people of the United States. And our Federal Reserve, which is a private institution, is constantly flooding the banks with money for overnight rates because banks won't lend to each other. But we have that money that they're willing to give to prop up things we never discussed that that is full faith and credit of the people. So if we invested in Medicare for all and education, it's already our money. We seem to yeah. be able to print it at will to give it to people. So why do we continue to let the other side talk about how we're going to pay for it? That should not be an yeah. issue at all. Setting, at a, all. setting aside a, a long drawn out discussion of modern monetary theory, you know, the bottom, the bottom line here is that when you invest in people, when you invest in infrastructure, go back and look at the Eisenhower Highway Bill. When you invest in people, go back and look at the GI Bill. You actually make more money in taxes than you spent on the original investment. Now, it takes some time for that money to come back, but when it comes back, it comes back in a big way over a long period of time. And we basically stopped investing in America when Reagan dropped the top tax rate. He also dropped corporate taxes. During the Eisenhower administration, fully one-third of all government expenses were paid for by corporate taxes. Today, it's less than 6%. And, and you know, this is the result of Reaganism, of the, of the changes that Reagan made to our tax code. And uh, so instead, Reagan was like, well, let's start putting everything on the country's credit card, essentially. Let's put it all in the debt. He tripled the national debt while he was president. And the theory was that whenever Republicans in office, their job, their, and a very important job for them to do, the Jude Wininski came up with this theory called the two Santa Clauses theory. Their job is to run up the debt so that when a Democrat becomes president, all the Republicans can start screaming about the debt and force the Democrat to cut social spending. And, and they've been doing, they've been following this script literally to the T since 1980. I mean, it was, Jude Wininski came up with it in the late 70s. Jude's no longer with us, but the two Santa Claus theory still is. I'm talking about the monetary policy of that it's our money. No, it's I get that, thing. yes. And we issue our own currency. And, right. uh, you know, uh, in theory, we could even, because the Constitution gives the U.S. Treasury the power to, to mint coins, right, and to define their value, they could produce, the U.S. Treasury could produce 20 $1 trillion platinum coins and then right. hand those coins off to the Federal Reserve and say, or to itself, essentially, and say, okay, we're going to pay off the national debt. The problem is you don't want to pay off the national debt. The national debt of the United States has only been paid off once. It was in, as I recall, 1836 during the, the presidency of Andrew Jackson. And it might have been a little earlier than that. But it produced a six-year-long depression. It was the longest, deepest, and most destructive depression in the history of the United States. And it came about because he paid off the national debt. The national debt is private savings. You know, when you as a family go into debt, and this is where this whole, you know, the family uh, model falls apart. If you as a family go into debt, it just means some bank is making profit off you. But when our country goes into debt, it means that people, companies, and even foreign countries have a safe place to invest their money.
that's private right. savings. That's the national debt. So the national debt right. is not a terrible thing. I mean, there's certain levels at which it becomes unwieldy and you don't want to be paying too much interest on it, which is the main reason not to have a large national debt because it sucks up money from other places. But yeah, you're absolutely right, John. And, and with a fiat currency, you can, you know, you can do those things. As I said, that gets into modern monetary theory, and we probably should get back into that one of these days. It's been a long time since we've had one of these good academic discussions of, of how economics works. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Heather in Lansing, Michigan, my hometown. Hey, Heather, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to call and talk about the previous caller that mentioned the high tax rates in Finland and Denmark and, you know, the Nordic countries. My husband and I had a chance to move our three kids and ourselves, of course, to Stockholm, Sweden, and we lived there for about three years. So I experienced the high tax rate. It worked out to be about 55 percent. But when you really broke down the numbers and figured out what was coming out of our pay here versus the tax rate we were paying there, it was about the same. I'd have to say maybe it was 50% here after you include things like your health insurance premiums and co-pays and Social Security and all of the things that just come out. And sales taxes and property taxes and everything everything else. Yeah, I mean, you get state, local, federal, depending on the state you live in. And all of those things added up to almost the same amount. But what we're getting for that money when we're in Stockholm are things like, I never had a copay. I never had to worry about getting seen by a doctor. We never ever had any charges for medication. All the medications for children under 20 are free, no matter what. Wow. We would get a stipend for each one of the children under 20, and they all were at the time, which equated to about $200 a month that went directly to them for their incidental expenses, like they all had a transportation card so they could ride the subway or the buses, and it just didn't come out of our pockets. So we ended up making a lower income than we did here when you convert your money sure. from U.S. To, yeah. to Swedish crowns. We had a lower income, but we had more disposable income. We were able to take a vacation in the Canary Islands. And, I mean, it was just, it blew me away yeah. how nice it was to live under that scheme. And it blows me away now when people don't get it that, yeah, your taxes will go up, but everything else goes away. Right. So you end up being in a better financial position as a result, and you really don't have to worry. If you get cancer, you're not going to go broke. Right. So your quality of life, your quality of life and your level of anxiety are dramatically improved. Absolutely. And, you know, if you go into the doctor, I'm a chubby American. I was probably one of the fattest people in the country when I got there because everyone is so fit because of the, the lifestyle that they live. But, you know, you go to the doctor for a checkup and they can say, well, you really should work out. So here's a gym membership included in your taxes. Wow. Go to the gym. No charge because you need it. You know, I mean, it was just you can't even uh, wrap your brain around yeah. The mentality of get healthy, stay healthy, you pay for it, and we're here. No problem. Even dental. You know, dental was covered. Yeah. It's just, it was fantastic, and I miss it every day. And the reason we came back wasn't because we didn't enjoy the lifestyle. It was the housing crisis there. We got there at about the same time that the refugee crisis hit. Mm. And by the time it came time for us to decide whether to stay or go, there just wasn't any housing available, let alone affordable housing. There just weren't properties yeah. to move into. They're building now, but it was too much. It was not the quality of life or the tax rates or any of that. It was There wasn't enough housing because they had so many people they brought in. That's remarkable. So I challenge anyone to do the math, if they can, mm-hmm. to compare how much of their income comes out that they aren't even really thinking about to pay for what they think is such great coverage and great health care compared to what would come out for universal coverage. That's great. Heather, thank you for the testimony. Absolutely. Anytime. It's, it's great to hear from you. Thank you so much. Greg in Everett, Washington. Hey, Greg, you wanted to weigh in on this? Yes. They, the conservative mind, they always throw up how are we going to pay for it. I was very disappointed in the last debate that even some Democrats kind of fell into that trap, too, and said, well, how are you going to pay for it, Elizabeth, or how are you going to pay for it, Bernie? Right. We're paying over a trillion dollars every year just in <laughs> the industrial war complex. We're, we're paying trillion dollars for war to, to kill people. We're yeah, I think, it's, I think it's about $720 billion, but yeah, point made. Yeah, and when you add in the, the, the corporate giveaways and 
the, the, the tax breaks for the billionaires, there you go. Yeah, that's another couple trillion dollars a year that we're, that we're giving never, away. They never talk about that. That's our money, too. We're paying that money every year. Yeah. And if that money, like I said, if it went to help people rather than to kill people, we could pay for a lot of this stuff, if not all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Well said. Greg, thank you very much. Peter in Chelawa, Washington. Hey, Peter, what's up? Hey there, Tom. Long time no speak. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Uh, what's up? You betcha. Uh, I wanted to follow the thread of the uh, lady um, living with her family in Sweden. Mm-hmm. I talked to you a few years ago about my experience of living uh, in New Zealand for the better part of the 80s. And when I was there, I worked, I had my own practice, alternative health care provider. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at my income level, I was being taxed, oh, around uh, 50, 55 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. And to most Americans, of course, that's outrageous. <laughs> right. right. But you know what? It felt good to me because I knew where those dollars were going. And it was showing even in my daily practice. I knew those the the bulk of those tax dollars were going for health care. They were going. Um, I saw a number of um, uh, solo parents, single parents, and those parents all owned their own homes so that they could provide their children with a with a safe place and education. Mm-hmm. So when I look at it, you know, it was well worth 55 cents on the dollar Yeah, on those two levels. Yeah. And And go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that we may be the only country in the world that has these two dysfunctional systems. And there's a reason for it, which I'll get to in just a second. The first is that we pay for education with property taxes. And what that does is it guarantees that poor neighborhoods will have crappy schools and rich neighborhoods will have good schools. And we don't have a national health care system, which guarantees that you're going to have some people who have poor health care or the equivalent of poor health insurance or no access to to health insurance. And some people who have extraordinary health care insurance. Now, when you dig into why these two things happened, it turns out that they both go back to the legacy of slavery in the United States, that that uh, from the time that Franklin Roosevelt first proposed a national health care system, Harry Truman re-proposed it a second time. If you look at this history, the people who were arguing against it were the southern white, uh, they were Democrats back at the time, the, the, the white racist party, essentially, prior to the 1960s. Um, who said, no, we can't have that because you're going to be using my tax dollars to give free health care to black people. And the same thing with the schools. The reason that our property tax-based school systems were put into place was to keep poor black neighborhoods poor. And to the best of my knowledge, no other developed country in the world does either of those things that way. And we do it purely as a consequence of racism in the United States. I, and I would say ongoing to this day, I, how anybody can look at these systems and not understand where they came from and how they came about, you know, with just a little bit of thought uh, just baffles me. Yeah. So to carry on with the thread here is the fact that what I learned from my experience was at that tax level that I described to you, and that's so appalling to your average American, is the fact that <laughs> the America, and I don't know if, we, I, I think we can say this even today, America is one of the lowest taxed industrial countries in the world. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> and, it's not and, the and, lowest taxed. And tax. you would agree that that's still the way. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. to finish with this, but, but we're is, also uh, the lowest uh, wages, Peter. See, that's the that's yes. the that's the point. When when working people pay high tax rates, they also get high wages. So their take home pay is pretty much the same all over the world. You know, the people who yeah. work actually, it's a it's a higher standard of living everywhere else except you know outside of the United States because of all of these weird things that have been built into our system. But you know, the tax rate is inconsequential. It's how much money you take home at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. So to, to finish this is a conversation I had with uh, 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 a right, uh, uh, somebody that's bent is on the right, um, uh, and a dear friend, uh, who, uh, when I told him my experience, and, and of course that all equates to the term socialism, right? And he said, oh yeah, but, you know, the problem with that is, is, is that 
I don't want to be held up making uh, $50,000 a year if that's the mean. You know, I want to, you know, I don't want to be told I'm, I can only make 50000 a year. Right. <laughs> And I, you know, think about that relative to the 1% and the rest of it. It's like, no, 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 no you're not being held back from making 50 right. it's, it's 50,000 a year. Right, the very rich people. Tax. Right, exactly. The very, <laughs> the very rich people are the ones who, uh, who actually see their income go down if tax rates go up. Working class people actually see their income go up when tax rates go up. So, you know, you somehow the, the very rich people have convinced us all to think like we're rich people, when in fact we're not rich people. And, and that's, the, that's the mind-boggling thing. Peter, thanks for sharing your story. It's great to hear from you again, and, and thank you. Uh, a little note of san- sanity here. These are good things, these conversations here on the Tom Hartman program. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations, I would really rather you don't know all about. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. Robbie in Portland. Socialism and capitalism are not at odds with one another. Basically, they're just different ways that we run our government. So what happens is is you have people throwing socialism or capitalism as if it's one or all. But what happens is is socialism taken all the way is turns into communism. Capitalism turned all the way, you know, it turns into fascism through oligarchs because you, you said it was Republican socialism. That's that's an oligarch. That's yep. that's fascism. That's, you're, you're absolutely I yeah. love your definition because you're absolutely right. <laughs> You're Thank absolutely you. right. Thank you. And that's a great uh, spectrum. You might not like what I'm. A, you might not like what I'm about to say, Tom. Okay. But uh, <laughs> so you're going to trash the Democratic Party now, right? Oh no, no, no! Just, okay. just no. I appreciate I appreciate you uh, taking my call, Tom. But I wanted to say the person who said she's waiting for a candidate to walk into her heart before she thinks about you know the policies or whatever that is dangerous tom and i got to people get elected I, because they build a they build a heart based uh, you know i mean this is a simple reality of politics robbie you've got to like that, the person tom, you're voting what, for you're not going to vote for them especially and you're not going to work for them tom tom here's how we get duped i got to tell you because we are not a democracy we are a republic democracy right we're actually a constitutionally limited democratic republic. representative democratic republic if you want to get technical yes, we are a republic <laughs> the point tom is is that this is how we get duped when when people who are tv personalities like ronald reagan bill clinton obama basically these people win the hearts they get up there and they lie to us and the thing is is if we play this heartstring thing clinton and we're not looking you know, at clinton didn't lie to us doing, he told us uh, you know you should go back and watch some of the 1992 debates with him and and bush and, well, and ross I perot think, i mean clinton was right up front that he was ne- a neoliberal that he was in I favor guess, of so-called free trade that we're going to replace well, those guess, jobs with I good jobs two years old i was two years old when that happened okay. so well, but it's, it's still lives on youtube the framing that's happening here my point, and I think maybe you're missing this, is that there was a time in the early 90s and throughout the uh, 2000s, and arguably even up through probably the first five years of uh, President Obama's administration, where the Democratic Party was essentially embracing those neoliberalist perspectives that you're decrying, and that that has changed. That you know, there's been a really substantial shift away from that, particularly since the election of President Trump. But it was on its way before that. I mean, the Progressive Caucus is, if not the largest, the second largest caucus at least for the Democratic Party and all of Congress, and it's growing. These are all good things, Robbie. I mean, you know, we've certainly the Wait, party is... hold on, but it's, here's the thing, though, Tom, because if we're concerned about election interference, isn't the media doing the same thing that Russia did? Oh, it's it, the media facilitated, you know, what Russia did, and, and by the way, also Saudi Arabia and others. Thank you very much. Greg in Webster, South Dakota, it says here you want to disagree with me. What's up, Greg? Well, after World War II, if they had returned to a Republican administration that said we must have austerity and pay off our war debt, it would have killed the economy. You're absolutely right. The GI Bill in the spending on infrastructure. Yep. It gave the men jobs to buy cars and 
fuel the economy. Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower borrowed additional money <laughs> after World War II. And we were in debt at, after World War II to the point of about 100, I think it was 110% of GDP, which is about where we are right now. We were massively in debt. And they borrowed additional money to stimulate the economy, to, to build, not even to stimulate the economy. That wasn't their goal. Their goal was to put America back to work. And it worked. It absolutely worked. So, Greg, I don't see what we're disagreeing about. Well, just the, you said it was the pent-up demand, but yeah, it, it wasn't really the demand. It was the ability to buy stuff. They could have had the want for things, but if they came back to a country with austerity and no jobs or right. no college, right. they wouldn't have had the means. Yeah, okay. I suspect we're saying the same thing, but your point is well taken. Thank you very much for the call, Greg. Okay. Uh, great. Yeah, good to hear from you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I, I am going to do a deeper dive into this whole issue of how conservatives think and how liberals think. There's a different set of underlying stories for each. But, you know, we've got so much on the table right now. I'd, I'd just like to wrap some of this stuff up. Matthew in Staten Island, New York. Hey, Matthew, what's, what's on your mind today? You wanted to talk about the emoluments clause? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. How are you? Um, Good. You know, I live in Staten Island, New York, which is like intensely Trump country. And it's it's distressing because, you know, I'm, I'm liberal. And my question was, you know, the Ukraine stuff, the Russia stuff, all the corruption, all the scandals. But from day one, with us phony paper put on the table, that's the taxes. But the emoluments cost from day one, he, he was violating the literally violating the Constitution. Right. I mean, Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm, and there just seems to be no real mainstream coverage, and, and that's typical about that. And it's so it's so blatant and flagrant, and I just don't know why that's not discussed more. It's, it's puzzling to me. Yeah. And just for the record, uh, Carter didn't sell his peanut farm. He put it in a blind trust, and the trust hired a guy to run it. And the guy who ran it screwed it up enough that he nearly lost the farm when he when he left the presidency, um, oh, and, and had to sell off a, a bunch of property apparently uh, in order to recover from it. But he put it in a blind trust. He he was not allowed during the four years that he was president to even know what was going on with his farm down in Georgia, yeah. which is amazing. And to have and to have all these hotels and property around the world. I mean, it's obviously a conflict of interest, and right. and and the sons are running, and he's not talking to them. I mean, that's. That that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, so and on top of that, I understand why the focus isn't more on on, on this on the Williams yeah. violation. And the, yeah, yeah. And, and there's there's two specific places in the in the Constitution where emoluments are mentioned. One is that you no no federal officer can take emoluments, can take gifts basically or income from foreign governments while serving in the United States government. And then the other one is yeah. that the president shall not take anything other than a salary while he's in the White House. And, uh, you know, no other emoluments. So and that's an article, too. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's substantial. And then on top of that, and, and Matthew, thank you. Thank you for the call. And thanks for bringing this up. On top of that, the lease for the hotel in Washington, D.C., you know, there, there are conflicting theories about why Trump is now saying that he's willing to sell the Trump Hotel in D.C., He's asking a half a billion dollars for it, $500 million. It does about 15 to $20 million a year in business. And, and you know, uh, I think the, probably the main reason he is selling it is because that building is the old post office building for Washington, D.C. In fact, it literally is referred to as the old post office building. It looks like a castle. It's just a beautiful, beautiful building. And so it's owned by you and me. By the, by the by we the people by the federal government and the and the lease explicitly says that if anybody is involved directly involved in ownership or management of the hotel and is in an elected position they have to give up the lease the lease becomes void i mean it may well be that what trump is afraid of is that some kind of a lawsuit is going to happen that's going to cause him to just like, it's just going to go away, right? I mean, somebody will successfully say to, in a court, please read the lease. The court reads the lease and says, oh, you know, the president can't own this lease, can't be a party to this lease any longer. And so, you know, we're going to give it to Marriott Corporation or Hyatt or something like that. 
it might be that that's what he's afraid of, or more likely, I think what's really going on is that Donald Trump is out of money. I think he's been out of money for two decades. He's, he's, he's had a very, very handy little money laundering operation for oligarchs around the world. He's one of only two major developers in, in New York who are willing to take cash, in, you know, uh, and, and cash from blind, you know, LLCs and from, from shell companies, essentially. And, uh, you know, I think the reasons are fairly obvious. He's just insanely corrupt. Lee in Orlando, Florida. Lee, we got about a minute here to the break. What's up? Okay, I'm going to be super quick, Dan. Uh, you were talking about the economy and the corporations that are uh, loaded with debt. Mm-hmm. I thought after the Trump tax cuts, they were flush with cash. And then secondly, these companies that are rating these debt-ridden companies as investment grade or, or whatever, these are the same companies that rated the home mortgage bonds as investment grade. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and by the way, they're flush, they were flush with cash, and they used that cash to buy back their stock. And now to maintain their operations, they're borrowing. That's what's going on. Yes. But lastly, fathers under grifters are going to grift. This new tax cut that Trump is proposing, is this another corporate tax cut, or is this the middle class tax cut he promised us before the 2018 elections that never... We don't, we don't know the fruition. details yet, Lee. We really don't know the details, so we'll have to wait and see. Lee, thanks a lot for the call. Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. We'll be right back. We used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older. But all that has changed now thanks to this magic in a bottle, Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And the best part is it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code Hartman. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code Hartman. Jeff in Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Oh, good morning, Tom. I would just like to touch base on you. I watch your program, and there's so much of it going on, the corruption of Trump, especially from the white evangelical groups. And it's just sickening. It's here right on a local level. I went to church this past week, and it says, go right, not left. So, I mean, I just can't. You mean on the the little sign out in front of the church? Yes. Wow. That's, that's how bad things are. I mean, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure that parable out. Which children would Jesus cage? I mean, is that the, the new question? Yeah, pretty much. Amazing. And, Amazing. Uh, so, I mean, it's just, you just can't reason with these people. They're brainwashed, and uh, the only hope we got here is to get these people on the middle of the fence. Otherwise, it's just... It's hopeless. Yeah. It's just, and and we need to get progressives activated and out. You know, I mean, uh, Michael Moore pointed out that one of the re- one of the things that really, really helped flip the Michigan uh, whole political system, basically, toward Democrats was having legalized marijuana on the ballot. Right. It right. brought out a lot of young people. The Republicans have known this forever. Right. They'll, they'll put these anti-gay things on the ballot or they'll put back, you know, before the Supreme Court, it was anti-gay marriage stuff or, uh, you know, whatever, you know, the, the whole bathroom stuff that happened in South Carolina. These things were pure stunts to draw the bigots into politics, basically. But to see it happening in churches, that's, that's terrible. Jeff, thank you for the call. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? I want to go back to uh, health care a bit mm-hmm. uh, um, that you were previously talking about. There was a good uh, pamphlet in the uh, Russian Empire in the 18th century. It was called, What is to be done? 
And now this was dealing, this is a revolutions podcast I'm listening to about the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. Basically, when the French Revolution happened, the, the Enlightenment ideas spread across all of Europe. But in, in Russia, where they did have Enlightenment ideas, where it flourished under Catherine the Great, they became very reactionary afterwards, after the French Revolution, and began just, you know, purging the government. They, be, they supported all kinds of reactionary um, revolutions across the world. And uh, Lenin actually cited what is to be done as the pamphlet that he wanted to... Um, that, that uh, helped radicalize him. He actually um, came up with his own what is to be done um, uh, pamphlet to uh, the situation that was currently in um, Russia. Mm-hmm. And if we look today what our situation is, we're kind of very similar to what the Russian people were under the Tsar in the 18th and 19th century. In a lot of ways, you could say Trump and the Basically, imperial presidency in general is the, the new czar for us. They're supporting re- reactionary counter-revolutions across the world, and domestically they're clamping down hard, hard right. Mm-hmm. And um, with healthcare, I view this just as, as another struggle of the working people across the world. And if we don't, if we don't start adopting a more materialistic world of the world, dialectic materialistic world, the view of the world of Karl Marx and Engels and uh, and a anti-imperialist stance like that Lenin had that he adopted, then I fear that we're we're not going to survive as a species because if you look at climate change, ecological and everything else, healthcare does factor into this. And um, a more egalitarian world would be a less polluting world. Hmm. But um, around the world, we're seeing counter-revolutions all around the world. And the liberals in our country are basically the liberals that supported keeping the czar, but wanting to put the less bad aspects of it, bludgeoning the the regime. And the reality is you had to get rid of the regime. I mean, it was was nightmare living under the Tsar. There was no democracy. Jews were being pogromed, uh, um, forced to live in the pale of settlements. That's why the Holocaust. I I get all this, Jared. We, We just have 20 seconds. What's the bottom line? What's the point you're trying to make? The point is we need to stop advocating for affordable health care. We need to advocate the complete free health care, the complete nationalization of the health care industry. That we shouldn't have to. It should be a right. Yeah, I wouldn't go for a complete nationalization, but I, I would nationalize the health insurance industry. Absolutely. Um, by by having single payer Medicare for all system. And, and there are some parts of the health care system that I, I think you could build a strong case for nationalizing, uh, for example, our hospitals. But I'm, I'm not advocating that explicitly. I'm just saying you could build a case. I mean, based on the experience of Great Britain. Jared, thank you for the call. Spot on. Karen in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Karen, what's up? Tom, I think we're going to have to make some changes to the emolument clause in the Constitution so that someone like Donald Trump cannot take office if they have not completely divested of their business interests. Well, that would require legislation, and that may well happen after Trump is out of office. Well, I hope so. We all need to have this discussion on getting laws in place so so we never get a man like him again. Yeah. Or, or in in addition to legislation, another, another way that could be done would be if the Supreme Court ruled that, you know, here's what the Emoluments Clause means, and here's here are the conditions under which it can be violated, and here's the conditions under which it can be satisfied when somebody comes into office who has a lot of wealth. And that's never been uh, adjudicated. And I know that there are several lawsuits right now against Trump for violations of the Emoluments Clause. Uh, you know, there's, there's one by Public Citizen. There's, I believe the ACLU is running one. There's a bunch of them by individuals. And, you know, none of them have hit the point where there's a trial yet. and Probably won't before the election. 
But I agree with you, Karen. This is something that we really need to need to be figuring out. Karen, thank you for the call. Joey in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Joey, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi, Tom. I've been wanting to say this for a long time. Uh, I, I really like the idea of, you know, putting... Uh, uh, insurance on when you're buying a gun and everything to make re- right. uh, give responsibility. But the problem I find with that, and I don't know how to get around that, is that whenever you uh, have a car and you buy auto insurance, they base your premiums on your credit scores. And it doesn't matter if you've never had an accident, if you've never had a ticket or anything else. If you don't have a good credit score, you pay a, a, a well, then you can just you could just you could just add to the law that hey, I, I didn't know that that's the case, and I'm not sure that that is the case. I know that you know Louise and I moved from a smart car to a, a Prius plug-in hybrid, and my insurance rates went down a couple hundred dollars a year because the new car is so much safer than the other car. Um, but you know, if it, it my, my credit score hasn't changed in years, um, but but you can just write into the legislation that you can't base it on credit score. You've got to base it on 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 history. Joey, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I'm a retired African-American librarian, and I was calling because of my concern about public education. I think it's in grave danger. There's a large number of emotionally disturbed children being taken out of self-contained special education classrooms and being placed in, quote, regular classrooms or mainstreamed. The time and energy these classroom teachers must devote to these children literally sucks the air out of a class period. And this is not just an issue for low-income or inner-city schools. I have talked to teachers all over the country in middle class as well as upper income who complain about this policy from the federal government. And uh, the thing is, they say, oh, well, you have an aid, so that should be fine. And it's not. Um, These children need to be returned to their self-contained classrooms to benefit themselves as well as their peers. And the fallout from this is we're losing classroom teachers. They're averaging five years, and they're gone. Pat, is this because Title I requires that any child who has been coded with special needs actually has to have those needs met by law, and that can be expensive for school districts? And so rather than meeting their needs, they're basically uncoding the kids and throwing them back into classrooms? Absolutely. It's a lot cheaper to have... A self-contained classroom has a limit on the number of kids. You can have no more than eight and a special education trained teacher, and they must have an eight. And when you throw them in a regular classroom, all bets are off. Yeah. How many you want. Yeah, Yeah. whatever you want. Amazing. Yeah, Chicago teachers just settled a strike, Hmm. and they had a man on TV almost in tears. They gave him a split class first and second grade, he said half of his kids, 11 of them, were special needs. He had one aide, he had a fire drill, and he was afraid he couldn't get everybody out the room. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this uh, this is, you know, basically abusing the system. But, you know, in, in defense of the school systems, which is sometimes you know, difficult to do, but in defense of the school systems, they're badly underfunded. Um, you know, particularly the school systems in, in places where the property taxes are the principal source of funding and property values are not that high, particularly poorer communities. And whether it's poor rural communities or whether it's poor inner city communities, this problem is real, is a very, very real problem. And, and this is uh, not a bug. This is a feature. This was built into the system back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when school systems, when public school systems were going nationwide. Horace Mann started this thing in the 1880s. And, and by the 1920s, basically, you know, pretty much every community in America had public schools. But they wanted to make sure that the wealthy communities could have good schools and the poor and, and that they wouldn't have to pay for schools in the poor communities. And so they put so they say they basically, you know, constructed it so that schools are paid for principally by property taxes and therefore the quality of a, of a school from the physical plant to the to the pay of the teachers you know, not necessarily the quality of the teachers themselves, but certainly the number of the teachers and therefore the quality of education 
largely becomes a function of the wealth of the community, and that's a tragedy. And that gets compounded by the fact that children who come from poor families, you know, rural or inner city, white, black, whatever it may be, children who come from poorer families are more likely to, you know, statistically more likely to need a little extra help in school, particularly in the first five years. And and so you 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 collide those two things, and you have a crisis. Am I accurately describing this, Pat? Partially, but here okay. in Illinois, I have a friend that works in Harvey, Illinois, low-income, mm-hmm. minority district. They had their special ed children in self-contained classrooms. The state came in and said, you must mainstream these kids. Oh, really? Yes. And they, oh, yeah. it, they ignored them and blew them off. And, and now the teachers there are just in tears. They said, we can't get anything done. Amazing. Because, of course, we have a large number. Of right. Because the state children. doesn't want to have to pay for these kids either. Is that what it is? Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's been, it's been 20 years since I was in the education business, as it were. Louise and I used to run a private school in New Hampshire. And uh, or we ran an institution that had a private school, a Hunter School. And and I was on the board for 30 years. Um, but, it, you know, it, we weren't we were taking kids out of the public school system that that no public school could deal with. Um, but so I only had, you know, passing familiarity with the insides of the public schools, although most of the teachers we hired had come out of public schools. And I would hear these horror stories. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, thank you for informing me, Pat. I really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you for the call. So, yeah, if that's happening in your community, get on the phone to your legislator and say, we want to into it. And once again, it's not just poor communities. Our middle class people and others are complaining just as violently about it. Okay, great. Pat, thank you for the information. Okay. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Good talking with you. Heather in Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Heather, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to call. I am addressing the previous caller that talked about the special ed kids in the general ed population. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm the parent of a couple of Aspies, and I understand the challenge and how it does suck the air right out of the room sometimes. But a lot of these kids need to be in the general population. Otherwise, they're going to shut down. You know, if you put high-functioning Aspies in a room with kids who just aren't at that level, they sink to the level of the room instead yeah, of right. rising. You're right. And developing coping. Yeah, well, what, what you're so speaking to, Heather, I, you know, I, I get the mainstreaming thing, and I support. I'm supportive of mainstreaming. In fact, when we ran the Hunter School, one of our goals was to get our kids back into public schools and into normal classrooms. Now, we were trying to get them all to a point where they could do that, and also that special <laughs> ed tends to basically be an educational ghetto it's a pit it's into kind which, of a daycare yeah all kinds of kids are poured and you know some of them are profoundly what used to be called mentally retarded developmentally disla- delayed fetal alcohol syndrome kids kids who you know 10 mm-hmm. years old and they and they literally can't read and probably never will or never will at, at a high level of functioning and then on the other hand you get kids who are on the autistic spectrum particularly aspies who are really super bright and real, right. you know, I mean, literally, literally could be doing college. Third graders were reading at a tenth grade level. Right, and we're they, doing could be, they could be do, doing college level work in the fifth grade. And I'm a little bit in that direction myself, and so I understand that really well. Me and, too. <laughs> and yeah, and they get they get you know uh, bored in a regular classroom, and they get profoundly well, they the bored and driven nuts in these special ed classrooms. Need. What I think we need to do, Heather, when I when I was in when I back in the day when I was a kid, I you know when I was in second grade, which would have been 1957, as I recall, mm-hmm. Sputnik went up, and Dwight Eisenhower freaked out, and he was the president, and and he said, "Oh my God, look at this! The Russians just you know they've the, I remember the little satellite going over our uh, you know over our house pinging. I listened to it on my shortwave radio." And Dwight Eisenhower said, we've got to educate a generation of scientists. And in my little elementary school in Lansing, in suburban Lansing, they came in and they did uh, basically IQ tests for all these kids. And they pulled two kids out of my class, me and my friend Terry, and put us into a special ed class for gifted kids. Mm-hmm. And Terry and I, over the course of the next couple of years in that elementary school, were all the way up to the level of doing college-level work by the time we had graduated sixth grade. Because mm-hmm. of that, that because was of that, the seventh grade. Be, yeah, because of that program, 
for gifted kids. That program so ended really the, when the Vietnam War started. And I think we need to bring back education for gifted kids, which would include probably a lot of Aspies. For education. Funding for education is the root of the problem, yep. I think. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing. You know, the, that program for gifted kids that helped me, that helped Terry, that helped a whole generation of kids who grew up sure. to become scientists. And this was, this was in the 50s, right? It ended in the mid-60s. That program needs to be brought back. We need to invest in our gifted children. We absolutely do. Heather, thank you very much for the call. Spot on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tim in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Well, I kind of wanted to further the conversation that you were having regarding uh, special needs. Okay, Tim, if I could pause you for just a second and let me just fill in the blanks for people who might have just tuned in. We had a caller in the previous hour who called and said she's the mother of two Aspie kids. Aspie kids with Asperger's are typically super, super bright, um, but, you know, they may have... uh, you know, mm-hmm. social, social skill deficiencies or sometimes uh, kind of Tourette-like things. And stuff like, but, but, but typically they're super bright, but, they're, but it's, consi- you know, it's on the autistic spe- spectrum. It's considered a disability. And her kids got dumped into a special ed class with a bunch of kids who literally could not read. And, and uh, you know, and she was concerned about that. And she wanted her kids mainstreamed. And then later we had a caller who was saying, well, uh, you know, mainstreaming is a good thing. You, you know, you want, and what I had said was, you know, the, the schools are doing this because they don't want to pay. No, actually, it started with a caller saying that um, special ed kids are getting dumped into the public schools and, or into the, into the mainstream classrooms, and it's sucking up all the air in the room. That was the first caller. Then the second caller said, but wait a minute, what about my kids? They're being dumped in special ed, and it's become kind of a ghetto. And I pointed out that when I was... In, in second grade back in 1957, the, 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 and, and Sputnik went up, Eisenhower went nuts. I might be a year off on the year there. You'd have to look when Sputnik went up. But Eisenhower went nuts, and, they, and the federal government started this program to fund programs for gifted kids. And my friend Terry and I were the two kids who got pulled out of our class in second grade. And, and super, you know, we could learn at our own rate. We had essentially a tutor along with a few other kids from, from the school. And by the time we graduated from the sixth grade, we were doing college-level work. And in fact, I got a summer scholarship to MSU when I was 14 years old as a result of that. And, and uh, so that's, that was my story. So now to your story. To, and, and I was calling for special ed, progra- special ed programs for gifted kids to be brought back because that program that Eisenhower started went away with the Vietnam War in the 1960s. Now to you, Tim. Well, I think all kids are gifted. And let me preface this by saying that, you know, my heroes were the the kids with disabilities that I grew up with. Uh, My brother was born with cerebral palsy. Um, I was born in 1961. And back then, before mainstream, uh, uh, special ed kids were mainstreamed, we had very, very good private schools for a lot of the kids with, with special needs or disabilities. The problem is they weren't compartmentalized. Properly, there was kids in there that should have been mainstreamed. But Joe had a great education, Betcher School in Denver, Colorado. Uh, B O E T C H E R was funded by uh, some wealthy patrons, and the teachers were paid very well. And this was just a school for special needs kids. And let me just say here and now that he had, and I've been a, I've I've had a, I've been a guest arts instructor and a, a public school substitute instructor for a long time as well. So I know how kids are mainstreamed today. And I do have a son with Asperger's as well. But Joe's education growing up back in the 60s was much, much better. This is your cerebral palsy brother. Getting. My brother is hers. Yeah. sitting right here. We listen to you every day. Yeah. And he's sitting here right here. And Joe's got a brilliant mind. Problem is his, his motor skills, and you wouldn't understand them to, to listen to him um, speak. And, and, of course, he's in a wheelchair 24-7. Right. But but Joe's a, a Trekkie and a big time you know thinker and and right. he's got a yeah cerebral palsy does not impair your intellect. Um, no no but the problem is is see they were lumped together with kids that that had severe retardation and and many other things but they were all put into a special needs school but the kids had art they had drama they had music they had uh, they plays they they went on field trips wow. we the the, the the whole community gathered around these kids these kids today are locked in the basement of a public school in one or two rooms 
and and they're given tutors and they have special ed teachers that fight like hell to try to give them some sense of, of, of personal value, personal stimulation. And the only time they're they're active with the rest of the school is during lunch. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And that's what they call mainstreaming today. Now, I don't know if this is a result of Title One. I don't know if this is a result. You know, you can correlate this back to when Reagan started deinstitutionalizing people that had mental needs in this country. Yeah. Yeah. When when the institutions all yeah, although that's not away. Title One. I. I mean, Title One came out of the new or out of the Great Society, as I recall. And Title One basically says that if a child has been coded as special needs, the school, regardless of the cost, has to provide them with what they need. But with all these great corporations, with all this 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 incredible wealth, why we can't go back to funding special needs schools yeah. and 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 let these kids get a really good education? And, and, and a good, uh, uh, you know, creative minds need creative outlets. I agree, you know? Tim. I think that, you know, the way that Elizabeth Warren is coming along and saying, let's blow the whole system up, you know, this whole public health insurance scam that has evolved since the 1930s, really, and 1940s. Uh, actually, it, it really took took deep root in the in the late 40s, early 50s, as the union movement was was growing, and the unions were bringing in health insurance as a way to compete. You know, or the or the companies rather were were bringing in health insurance as a way to compete, and unions were using it as something to fight for. Um, let's blow the whole thing up and replace it with a with a nationwide system that really works for everybody, but doesn't work for the corporations. We've got yeah, a system now to. where uh, you know some of our special needs schools. I you know I mentioned to to the last caller that um, you know Louise and I started this thing called the Hutter School in New Hampshire. It's, mm -hmm. it's it closed a couple of years ago, but for uh, for almost for almost thirty years, maybe a full thirty years, it operated and served severely. Um, uh, kids with ADHD that, that were on the severe mm -hmm. end of the spectrum, you know, uh, and, and we were taking basically Title I kids. Public schools were paying us to educate these kids, you know, with the goal of mainstreaming yeah. them back into the, into the schools. And, and but what, when I looked around at the landscape of my essentially competitors, probably two thirds of them were private for profit corporations. And and, yes, and and that's and, a problem today. Yeah, and I was not impressed by. Yeah, there was one that was really well run, but but and they charged a, a fortune. I mean, they were charging like sixty five thousand dollars a year for tuition. Um, oh, but, yeah. but but the rest of them were basically just you know people trying to cash in on on Title One requirements. Tim, Let me uh, say one I, other thing real quick. Joe never paid a dime. My, we grew up in the housing projects. Joe never paid a dime. This that's was great. All done. See, we need yeah. to do that, and we need to do it for our entire nation. And, and, we, and we need to seriously rethink how we do education. Tim, thank you for the call. Abdul in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Abdul, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, I just also wanted to add to the lady who says she lived in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And I think I've been, I don't know why we've not been able to reach the outside populace so that they can be aware that there's something good in that. So no, did you, you lived in a country that had had a national health care system and high taxes? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, you don't have to worry about copies. Where was you that? Know, you don't have to worry. No, no, I'm just saying what the lady said, the story she gave when she moved to Sweden. Yeah. And the, the, the other gentleman even called and was trying to support that as well. So and your so experience was, was the same as hers. Was that in the United Kingdom? No, I mean, I worked for Oxfam, but I wasn't based in the United Kingdom, but it was a similar situation. Right. You know, but then I could limit it here, and the the, the amount of stress around healthcare, right. you know, how it's just too much. So I don't know why this is not yet outside the domain of the public. I agree. This is, this is why we're seeing yeah. these diseases of despair. We're seeing an explosion in deaths that are the consequence of drug, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, mm -hmm. and obesity. And, the, you know, these, yeah. these are considered diseases of despair. Abdul, thank you for the call. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. But in the meantime, don't forget, it, it, democracy doesn't just happen. It doesn't fall out of the sky. It requires all of us getting active and involved and showing up and participating. And that includes you. And by the way, it's great therapy, right? If you're a little freaked out or feeling a little depressed or bummed out or seasonal affective disorder or whatever it may be, you know, show up for drinking liberally, show up for your local Democratic Party, show up for, for you know, indivisible, whatever, whatever you can find, participate. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And tell your friends about progressive media. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.